You're listening to the best of the Bradcast. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some of our favorite interviews for you. A best of the Bradcast. On today's show, energy journalist David Roberts of Vox talks with Brad about California's new landmark climate and clean energy legislation. And after that, investigative journalist Dave Lindorf of The Nation talks about exposing the Pentagon's massive accounting fraud. So please enjoy this best of the broadcast. California Senate passed SB 100, a bill mandating that utilities serving the state move to 100% carbon-free energy by 2045. Not renewable energy, but carbon-free energy. After its adoption in the state assembly the day before, the bill will now move to the desk of Governor Jerry Brown if he signs the bill into law as many expect that he will, but we don't know for sure, it will become one of the most aggressive such bills in the nation, matching only Hawaii's carbon-free by 2045 commitment. That, according to Ars Technica's Megan Guess. But due to the size of California's economy, which, if taken as its own country, would be the fifth largest economy in the world, Uh, This move, again, if it's approved by Governor Brown, is seen as a very big deal, not just in the country, but potentially for the world. The bill specifies that any energy used in the state, whether it comes from either inside or outside the state, cannot contribute to additional greenhouse gas emissions from that state. The stipulation preemptively closes a potential loophole in which California could acquire cheaper energy from polluting plants in border states under this bill they cannot or at least they have to stop doing so i suppose by 2045 as i understand it the bill also ratchets up california's previous carbon free energy plan such that the state will now have to move to 60 percent carbon free energy by 2030 rather than the 50% goal by 2030 that was in place previously. The bill has been on the table for months as lawmakers reviewed costs and feasibility studies. According to the Los Angeles Times, however, support for the bill gained momentum in recent weeks as officials emphasized that California would essentially lead the nation and arguably even the world in response to climate change. The argument comes as the Trump administration has abdicated leadership on environmental issues, renouncing the Paris Agreement and offering a clean power plan replacement. Uh, That's the Obama clean power plan that is now to be replaced by Donald Trump's not so clean power plan. Um, And uh, that would do, of course, little to curb carbon dioxide emissions. So. A lot of folks are looking to California right now, where um, even our former Governor Schwarzenegger has uh, pressed the state legislature to pass this bill. 
Desi Doyen in our Green News report today, coming up in a bit, also argues that this is a very big deal for a number of reasons. But since it's always good to get a second opinion on such things and uh, whether meeting this goal is even possible or feasible or, as some Republicans argued in opposition, will it drive up the cost of electricity suddenly? To uh, get a second opinion on that is our old friend Vox.com's great energy wonk, David Roberts. He writes about politics, climate, and energy, and the confluence thereof over at Vox.com after spending uh, years over at Grist.org. David Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Glad to be here. All right, so before we discuss whether this is uh, feasible or not and what the pitfalls may or may not be, SB 100 uh, originally called for 100% renewable energy by 2045, but it has switched to carbon-free energy by 2045 uh, during the course of the uh, the bill's evolution. What's what's the difference between the two, and why, to your knowledge, was that change made? Uh, well, the change <coughs> was made quite... <coughs> quite a while ago, I think. Um, the idea is uh, lots of people in the sustainable energy world are worried that once you get past 60% renewables, get up to 70, get up to 80, getting that last 20% is incredibly difficult if renewables are all you have to work with. The, I- the idea is renewables you know, are variable. They come and go. Mm-hmm. So you have to... <coughs> have something on the system that compensates for that with you, flexibility. You mean, you, mean, you mean they come and go during the day, it's when there's with sunny the weather, and so right. right. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what a variable means. Basically, you can't turn them on and off. They mm-hmm. come on and off, you know, with the weather. Right. So you have to you have to accommodate them rather than, uh, you know, turning them on and off. And, and the way that's been done in California and every other place in the world, really, that's substantially uh, implemented renewables has been with natural gas. Mm-hmm. Like, natural gas turns out to be a great tool for balancing <laughs> renewables. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to get to zero uh, carbon, mm-hmm. natural gas is off the table unless you capture and bury the carbon, which is ridiculously expensive and nobody is going to do. So if you have a ton of renewables and no natural gas to balance them out with, the worry is you need other things to balance them out with. And whether that could be nuclear power, it could be fossil fuels with carbon capture, and it could be, uh, notably, it could be hydro, big hydro. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the reason they went renewables up to 60 and then just zero carbon from 60 to 100 is just for flexibility. It's mm. to allow for those other options if they turn out to be needed. It yeah. doesn't by any means exclude renewables, and mm-hmm. there's plenty of people who think that renewables are going to get way higher than 60. Like mm-hmm. There are plenty of people who think we'll never need those options, but I think allowing for them uh, broaden the coalition of people behind this bill. Isn't hydro, by the way, you say big hydro, it, isn't that renewable? <clears throat> well, it's zero carbon. Uh-huh. Um, it does, It does. I think, environmental damage uh, in other ways. Mm. I mean, uh, it, it, <laughs> there are lots of very big and very, very old controversies around, <laughs> around big hydro that mm-hmm. I'm not super briefed on, but I think uh, it, it is far from harmless, let's put it that way. I gotcha. And of course, it's, I guess, limited during droughts as well, or it can be. Yeah, uh, and it is a big problem in California. Yeah. If you're depending on water <laughs> for your <laughs> for yep. your power, uh, 
that's a big deal in California. But but when we say carbon free, it could allow things like natural gas to be con- to continue to be used uh, so long as somehow emissions were captured, basically. Or that's right. Okay. If you if you capture the carbon dioxide that comes out of the plant and bury it deep in the ground, mm-hmm. then you are technically carbon neutral, and you will be allowed under this bill. The question is, is there ever going to be a point? when attaching a giant second facility onto your power plant that is purely parasitic to your profits and your power is ever going to be competitive with solar and wind, which are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every time we turn around. And, you know, I, I don't it. think so. But yeah. but but they wanted, to, they wanted to leave it open, basically. You know, like whatever. Sure. I, I think the philosophy is... Who knows, they might invent something new that's zero carbon. We don't want to dictate now what people are going to use in 2040. We'll just say it can't have carbon. I got it. Well, we, and we should note, or I did note, that California is not the first state to commit to this uh, this goal, 100% uh, carbon-free power by 2045. Uh, Hawaii did it last year. but as, I believe Hawaii yeah. is all renewables, which is, oh, is, which, is, which is different, yeah, and much more... Ambitious, yeah. Hawaii is in a very unique situation. It's, it's not connected to the sort of uh, to the to the U.S. grid, you know, mm-hmm. the continental grid. So it's it's got its own issues. But but in terms of, I mean, if you put together the size of the economy, the the nearness of the targets, and the ambition, I think this is as big as anyone's gone. Like this is, I, I think this is as big as it gets the, uh, for California. Uh, for the world, yeah. I don't think there's another. I don't think there's another economy in the world that is comparably large and carbon intensive that has anything close to comparably ambitious goals. There are, you know, there are some small European countries that have very ambitious goals, but they don't. You know, they're like their economies are like the size of San Francisco. You know, California is really big. And that's one of the things that actually struck me about this when I heard about it. This seems like a huge deal. And if this was, uh, you know, it feels like if this was uh, done by uh, Great Britain or, or Germany or something like that, that we'd all be talking about it. Maybe we will once it's actually signed. But um, so you, you would agree with Desi Doyen that this is as big a deal as uh, as, as she describes it to be uh, and a big deal uh, for the world as far as taking a leadership position uh, when it comes to climate change. Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. This is a, uh, a very big deal in, in, any, in any interpretation, although it is also important on the flip side to acknowledge that it's not some big uh, leap. It's not some big transformation. It is another step along a pathway that California has been walking very deliberately <clears throat> for for over 15 years now. So in a sense, I think that might be almost why there hasn't been a bigger reaction, because at this point, people are, are so accustomed to hearing California is doing another wildly ambitious thing on climate that it's, you know, they've sort of like become inured to it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a big deal when they first passed their renewable portfolio system in 2002, way back in 2002. And ever since then, every few years, basically, they've ramped it up, ramped up the ambition. And all this is, <clears throat> I mean, the people who say this isn't a big deal, one of their arguments is it's, it's pretty likely that California is going to get somewhere close to these targets anyway, regardless, mm-hmm. even without legislation, just based on current trends. So in a sense, 
California has gotten, its policy has gotten more and more ambitious, but its policy is always running a little bit behind of reality. You know what I mean? And, and, and some people look thing. at that and say, yeah. oh, some people look at that and say, oh, it's not ambitious enough. But I think that misses the point is, A, when you put a policy in like this, it, it cements a new baseline. And B, it just is a signal to markets, to innovators, to new companies that they are, are safe making long-term investments in these things. And so they'll probably beat these targets too, just like they've been. I mean, the reason, one of the reasons this is happening is most utilities in California are closing in on their 2030 targets already, and it's 2018. Well, they're close. They were closing in on the uh, the fifty percent target uh, for twenty thirty, and so that's why we've now right. uh, ratchet. Are we? If yeah. this is signed, we'll we'll ratchet it up to sixty percent. Looking at and, this, and one reason also that yeah. that this is a a big deal. One one final reason it's yeah. not just the long term target because you know climate policy. You know you've been following this. Climate policy is full of very ambitious <laughs> targets very far away, mm-hmm. you know, with, with that some other politician is going to have to deal with. But right. they didn't do that. They they put the 2045 target in place, but they also bumped up near-term targets. So this is a real, it's, it's real. It's really going to accelerate things. Now, uh, Governor Brown has uh, yet to sign the bill, as I mentioned. Uh, some news reports indicate he may be withholding his signature in order to gain leverage for some other pending legislation. Uh, including a, uh, a contentious bill to create a regional western electric grid. Uh, right now, I guess uh, California's grid is contained just within California, but there's some talk about uh, joining with other western states to expand the grid, and that has major green groups sort of split. Now, David Roberts, I know you wrote... Uh, about a 3,000 or so word article on this recently. Uh, and I know this because I read it. So, uh, And I don't know if this is possible, but are you able to sort of summarize what the general fight is uh, over that bill in, in terms that laymen can understand, uh, even though I appreciate it's a really, really wonky debate? What, what's the, what's yeah, that debate? I will, I, I will accept this, this challenge. Yes. <laughs> it is. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, Right now, uh, California is administered, its grid and its market, its electricity market, is administered by an organization called CAISO. It's mm-hmm. the ISO in California mm-hmm. that just administers California's grid. And the ISO and what, is? Uh, and, and an ISO is an organization that, that monitors energy markets and, and regulates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make the rules for the market. Basically. Okay. They, 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 they more or less make the rules for the grid. Okay. And the idea, what's on the table is, expand instead of just a California-specific ISO, there would be a larger regional ISO that would administer a market that includes um, a bunch of Western states. Mm-hmm. It's not clear who all would join, but the idea is you want a bigger regional market. Mm-hmm. And the advantages of that are, are, I think, pretty clear and intuitive to people. Like the wider of an area you have the more different kinds of energy you have to draw from, the more you can share energy. So California frequently, like during the midday when all the solar is producing, mm-hmm. has excessive energy, has more energy than it can use. And so if it was if it was more integrated into a wider regional grid, the idea is you could just share that clean energy across the western grid and it would and you'd have more competition. You drive coal plants out of out of the West because of coal plants do terrible when there are markets 
Because right now we I, have I, to, when we when we uh, produce all of the solar that we do produce during the day, we have to sort of stop the generation uh, that and and, and right. we could it's called, curta- it's called curtailment, right? And there is and there is some curtailment going on. I should say there is kind of a limited Western market set up. It's not worth getting into the details, but the idea is this would be a more formal, mm-hmm. big organization run by an ISO, uh, uh, just not California's ISO. So mm-hmm. the advantages are, are pretty clear and obvious, and, and that's why most mainstream green groups ultimately support this, and that's why Governor Brown supports this, is because it's going to um, make power cheaper, probably, <laughs> and, and, and generally make the West uh, lower carbon, probably. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what people think. Right. On the other side, the naysayers basically say, look, California is in a different world <laughs> policy-wise <laughs> than, in, than anywhere else in the U.S., but mm-hmm. especially these other Western states. And so all that's going to happen is if we surrender power, if we surrender the authority over our own grid... Mm-hmm to this wider ISO, which has to balance the interests of all these different states, it's inevitably going to weaken our policy. It's inevitably going to weaken our ability to be as ambitious as we want to be. And furthermore, a wider (coughs) um, regional ISO would be set up by and administered by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and and Trump is busy packing FERC Mm -hmm. with Trumpies. Right. <laughs> and so and so basically I think even the people who oppose regionalization in the short term recognize that some regional coordination is absolutely a good thing. Like they all everyone supports the broad idea of broader regional integration. The worry is just maybe we shouldn't do this right now in this political environment. Yeah. Given given how little we know about how it might turn out, you know, like what, like once you give up control over CAISO and it's this regional ISO, California is going to have no more control over that than any of the other states. So they can't really, you know, they can, they can make a bunch of conditions like we won't join unless you promise this, that, and the other. That's what the bill that's up in the legislature right now is. It's basically like we will join this regional organization if they agree to this, 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 and this. But as opponents keep pointing out, once you sign on to that, once the regional ISO is created, that's it. California has no more authority over it, so it can't enforce any of those conditions. They're just, you know, there's no legal force to any of those conditions. So you're just throwing California at the mercy of other Western states, I think, is the the worry. And is this something that uh, Jerry Brown uh, favors? Not not, uh, throwing us to the mercy Uh, of other states, but uh, favors expanding the, the grid? He intensely favors it. He intensely favors regionalization, and to the point that that's the reason he's threatening to veto SB 100, is he says, I won't sign this unless you pass this regionalization bill and send it to me also. That's the power play he's trying to make. Because, uh, you know, historical fact, the, the SB 100 was up, before the legislature last year, too, and it failed because it was connected to the regionalization bill. Mm-hmm. And the regionalization bill just got too, too complicated and too contentious, and it brought SB 100 down with it. So now Kevin DeLeon, the California senator who has sponsored SB 100, has very carefully avoided letting it get stuck to anything else. So it's passed on its own 
now, and Brown is basically trying to retie them together, but I don't think he's going to get away with it. Now, the only ones uh, who seem to be opposing SB 100, uh, the uh, 100% carbon-free by 2045, now seem to be uh, generally uh, Republicans, and uh, they're arguing that this is going to spike electricity prices. Of course, they always do that for anything that has anything to do with energy. But is there uh, some truth here, or is that just the usual GOP fear-mongering on this stuff? Uh, it is the usual GOP fear-mongering. You know, uh, it's, a big, it's a huge GOP talking point that, that California pays some of the highest electricity rates in the country, mm-hmm. and that is absolutely true. But what is also true, and they always leave out, is that California rate payers pay some of the lowest electricity bills in the country. Because mm-hmm. even though rates are high, they've been pushing energy efficiency so much for so long that they use less. And so they, and so on net, they pay less. Really? So California's, and it was always the strategy, we're going to raise the price of power a little bit by, by cleaning it up, uh-huh. but we're going to reduce the amount you use by pushing energy efficiency, and it will balance out and will profit in the end. And that's exactly what has happened at every stage of this, and probably is going to happen again at this stage. So yes, I think in the near term, um, there might be some some increase in power prices, but in the long term, wind and solar are cheaper. <laughs> they're cheaper than they're getting. They're cheaper than coal. They're cheaper than nuclear, and we're getting pretty close to the point where they're cheaper than natural gas. We're getting pretty close to the point where building new wind and solar is cheaper than running existing already built natural gas plants. Really? So this high, so this idea that by pushing harder on renewables, we're going to raise prices is such a like knee jerk from the eighties. You know, <laughs> it's like a Reagan era talking point all around us in the country. Power prices are falling where renewables are integrated. It's, 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 it's not even a open question anymore there. That's why coal is dying is because renewables and natural gas are cheaper. Like the, 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 it's all in the economics. So, about 98% of that is just the GOP, you know, mm-hmm. auto, automatic nervous response yes. to literally any regulatory proposal. It'll raise prices. That's all they know how to say anymore. But but I think Californians now have been through enough rounds of this that they just don't buy it anymore. Like, no one buys it anymore. I don't think it has any effect in that political context anymore so uh is this i guess the big question is uh a is this possible and you know when when you were uh talking about the regional grid one of the things that occurred to me is one of the arguments i guess against it was well you know we've got this new goal now if this is signed for uh for 2045 uh, we've got all of this extra energy that we can't use at peak hours. Can't we uh, put that all into battery storage at this point? Because in some fashion, we're going to have to get rid of uh, natural gas, which is, uh, I want to say, about uh, 24 uh, or, th- or about 30 percent or something like that uh, of our current uh, uh, energy production. Can't we put that extra energy into battery storage, get rid of the natural right. gas, and not deal with uh, other states around the, the region? Well, yeah, this is a, a, another, um, another argument against regionalization, or another group of people who are leery of regionalization are people who would rather, um, the, the term of art for this is intensify the grid 
rather than expanding it. And mm-hmm. intensifying it just means more storage, more microgrids, more distributed energy. So the idea is instead of reacting to this power surplus by trying to export it somewhere, let's react to it by enabling our grid to absorb more of it. And of course, the response to that is, well, of course, we have to do both, right? I mean, of course, of course, California is in the midst of doing both. I mean, California, uh, uh, one of the other bills that passed the legislature that didn't get much attention was a renewal of an, this enormous subsidy program in California for energy storage. So, so um, you can do a lot of that, but I think people underestimate how much, like when you have a California-sized amount of power, <laughs> That's a lot of energy storage. Mm-hmm. That's really a lot. I think people underestimate just how much storage is going to be required mm. to absorb the amounts of power we're talking about here. It's 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 a quantum leap from from what we have now. So in the meantime, it would be helpful to be able to export some of that. And you know, g- climate change doesn't care where emission reductions come from. Mm-hmm. So if California is maybe reducing its own emissions ever so slightly less, but reducing emissions in in nearby Western states a lot more, you know, from California's perspective, that might be a loss, but from the world's perspective, that's a win. Like, it's, it's yeah. we just need to, you know, the West in general needs to reduce uh, yeah, well, the I, world in I, general. I, I'm, I'm just rooting for us, for California at this point. Uh, <laughs> just hanging on with all I can. Uh, and really, last question, because I know you got to get out. Uh, if this is signed by the governor, uh, David Roberts, is this actually achievable? Uh, I know a lot of people have uh, have their doubts, but uh, looking at it, looking at just the numbers and everything else, we are talking about 30 years, a 30-year goal here. So yeah. is this achievable in 30 years? It, it is absolutely 100% achievable in 30 years. To me, the interesting question, the open question is, would California achieve this anyway without this? And that's an open question. Like, it's entirely possible to me that California is already on this trajectory, whether or not it puts it in regulatory fiat or not. But absolutely, it's achievable. It's probably going to happen regardless. That's good news. And that, I guess, means we can double down again in a couple of years under uh, I, Governor I Gavin Newsom. Yeah. I absolutely think that will happen. This will not be the last time California boosts its ambitions. And it will not be the last time, David Roberts, that we bother you to join us on the broadcast. You can find his uh, efforts, his work at Vox.com. And, of course, he is a must-follow on the Twitters at DRVox. Just remember Dr. Vox, and you'll find him on uh, Twitter. (laughs) David Roberts, always appreciate you joining us, my friend. Thanks a lot, Brad. Have a good one. You too. That was Brad's conversation with energy journalist David Roberts of Vox.com back in August. Coming up next, Dave Lindorf of The Nation talks about his expose of the Pentagon's massive accounting fraud from early December. I'm producer Desi Doyen, and you're listening to the best of the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You're listening to the best of the broadcast. Well, not nothing. The defense contractors are pretty happy about it. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Back in 2001, just months after George W. Bush took office that year, then-Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who had pledged to trim costs at the Pentagon to make it more efficient, offered a stunning announcement regarding the huge military budget that was his official responsibility as a notoriously micromanaging defense secretary, as he argued that foreign adversaries, in fact, were not the greatest threat faced by the U.S. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. $2.3 trillion. The Pentagon was having trouble locating an amount of money that was, as investigative reporter Dave Lindorf recently described at The Nation, an amount more than five times as large as the Pentagon's entire fiscal year 2001 budget, of about $313 billion. $2.3 trillion was missing, was gone, was unaccounted for. The money, as Rumsfeld suggested at the time, was lost or even just untrackable. It was, as Lindorf writes, a startling announcement at the time, at least for one 24-hour news cycle. No Pentagon leader had ever said such a thing, nor has anyone done so since then. But, he notes, Rumsfeld's expose died quickly as the following morning, on September 11, 2001, four hijacked commercial jet planes plowed full speed into the two World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania. Since that time, there has been no follow-up and no effort made to find the missing money. In September of 2017, more than a decade and a half later, Republican Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa, a critic of the Department of Defense's financial practices, said on the Senate floor that the Pentagon's longstanding failure to conduct a proper audit reflects, quote, 26 years of hardcore foot dragging on the part of the DOD, where internal resistance to auditing the books runs deep. The senator said he was referring to a 1990 law that was passed by Congress called the Chief Financial Officers Act, requiring all departments and agencies of the federal government to develop auditable accounting systems and submit to annual audits. Since then, every department and agency has come into compliance Except for the Pentagon, the government's largest discretionary cost center. The DOD receives 54 cents out of every dollar in federal appropriations. That's 54 cents out of every tax dollar. And yet, it seems, nobody actually knows 
what happens to that money, what it's spent on and where it actually goes. Because of the decades-long failures, Congress ordered an independent audit of the Pentagon and just last month, as Lindorf describes in his new exclusive report at The Nation titled The Pentagon's Massive Accounting Fraud Exposed, the independent auditing firm uh, giant Ernst & Young and a number of other private firms that were hired to audit the Pentagon announced last month they could not complete the job. The firms concluded that the DOD's financial records were riddled with so many bookkeeping deficiencies, irregularities, and errors that a reliable audit was simply impossible. That, as Lindorf notes, Congress appropriated a record $716 billion for the DOD in the current fiscal year of 2019. That is up a total of $24 billion from the fiscal year in 2018, which itself was up $6 billion from the fiscal year of 2017 when we spent $686 billion. Now, Donald Trump has been very proud of these increases in defense spending even as the closest thing to a full-scale war that the U.S. is currently fighting is in Afghanistan, where approximately 15,000 U.S. troops are deployed. That is just 2.8% as many as were involved in Vietnam at the height of that war. All of this, as Lindorf argues, amounts to little more than a gigantic unconstitutional accounting fraud, deliberately cooking the books to mislead the Congress and drive the DOD's budget ever higher year after year, regardless of military necessity. That, it should be noted, as we are told year after year that the federal government does not have enough money to fix our crumbling infrastructure, to fund our schools, or, or even to provide health care insurance for every American who needs it. Joining us now to discuss this uh, remarkable story and what he says is actually happening with all of that unaccounted-for taxpayer money shoveled annually into the Pentagon is David Lindorf. He is the award-winning investigative reporter who has been raking the journalistic muck for some 40 years now. He writes for The Nation, London Review of, of Books, Salon. He's the author of several books himself and the founder of the journalist's news website, thiscan'tbehappening.net. Dave Lindorf, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Uh, before we discuss what you argue is actually going on with the DOD funding that leads to larger and larger budgets each year while making an actual audit of yearly spending impossible, how did the Pentagon respond last month to this uh, recent announcement from the uh, independent auditors that an actual audit after all of these years was, in fact, impossible? Well, it's pretty funny. Patrick Shanahan, who is uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, came out and told the press that we failed the audit, but we never expected to pass it. And uh, he was right about that. Um, I was warned in advance that it would fail because of all the fake numbers in the budget and the inability to have prior year budgets that you could rely on, which you need when you do a current audit. And then he said, it was an audit on a $2.7 trillion organization, so the fact that we did the audit is, is substantial. Um, the, but... They, he wanted credit for having done it, but the you know our our brainless media, mass media, mm -hmm. um, which has no historical context ever in their articles, 
failed to mention that for 26 years the Pentagon has been stonewalling the congressional mandate to have an auditable budget. They've been saying things like uh, the, the standard refrain is, oh, we have these legacy systems and they don't talk to each other and uh, we just can't do an audit and or have an auditable budget. And, you know, I look at that and I say, well, 26 years ago I was using a K-Pro and you guys were using probably IBM right. desktops. Right. And a lot has advanced since then, and the Pentagon is the one agency of all the agencies in the U.S. government that had ample money to buy the newest equipment, you know, as it does with weapons, so that it could audit its budget. I, it, I mean, they could have bought five Watsons from IBM, you know, and, of course. and done the whole job. I, I, yeah, I know. Uh, the fact that the Pentagon uh, seems to want just a participation award for the fact that they had an audit, even though the audit failed, is kind of remarkable. But in, <laughs> in the old days, Dave, uh, you know, before Trump and back when Republicans still used to at least pretend a little bit to be fiscal hawks, you know, who are concerned about government waste and fraud and abuse. This this failure to even be able to audit the Pentagon might have led to some new headlines, but frankly, I'm only even hearing about this massive failure from you now in, in the nation a month or so later. What has the response been from Republicans like Chuck well, let's, Grassley? Wait, wait, let's not lay this on Republicans. This is a bipartisan failure. I know. We have a, is it? Is it? We have a, we have a, a single war party that runs the country, and mm -hmm. Democrat, Republican, and They've known about this stonewalling by the Pentagon for 26 years, which includes a lot of Democratic Congresses. Mm -hmm. Nobody has ever called them to the carpet on this. The only person who has been consistently uh, infuriated is uh, Chuck Grassley. You know who's not a particularly popular person among liberals and and the left. Well, but that's what uh, I'm that's what I'm asking, Dave, because I'm wondering what his response was and what the congressional Democrats what their response was. <laughs> anybody's response to this rather remarkable news. He uh, actually had uh, a year ago told David Norquist, the CFO for the Pentagon, mm -hmm. uh, who has the rank of undersecretary. Uh, he said that, you know, in all those years, the Pentagon has all this money to fund fancy weapons, but it can't come up with an auditable budget. You know, he said, he said uh, that he was inclined to believe that it was deliberate, that the Pentagon doesn't want its budget uh, to be audited, and, you know, he just called him out. And, and he's not the only one who said that. I, my sources in this uh, article, mm -hmm. who are both uh, off-the-record sources and on-the-record, some pretty key people on the record, mm -hmm. uh, are pretty much of a mind that the Pentagon is simply unwilling to do a have itself audited, doesn't want to be audited, and that the fake numbers, which is what I've concluded these uh, huge numbers are, mm -hmm. are deliberately there to, as Chuck Spinney, a very famous and highly praised whistleblower from the 80s, mm -hmm. uh, says the purpose is to paralyze Congress, and, and I would add to paralyze the press. Uh, nobody can understand the budget. Nobody wants to stick their neck out and talk about uh, these absolutely crazy numbers that would lead people to say that they're tinfoil-headed Mm -hmm. conspiracy theorists. Right. It, because if you, you know, if you try to say this is real money, which, you know, maybe some of it is real money, 
But we don't even know because they won't explain what it is. I, but, but they're uh, called plugs, by the way, in the mm-hmm. Pentagon, which is a, an interesting term. It's not an accounting term, but that's what they do. They make up the numbers and they plug them in, and they have no basis in, in you know underlying ledgers or anything. What it does is it, it just makes it impossible to know how, what has happened to the $700 billion that was put in each year. Let me talk about those plugs, because you've been able to sort of uh, explain what these mean in your story. And I and I have to admit, even after reading, it's a lengthy story. It's an excellent story. I read it uh, several times. I'm still having trouble uh, figuring this out, but I think that's by design, not by you, but by the Pentagon. You describe these uh, plugs essentially as uh, at the heart of this long unconstitutional fraud, as you call it, that the Pentagon is carrying out. So explain to me how this works. Uh, They get a budget each year. Let's say the military, uh, the U.S. Army gets uh, X billions of dollars, and then that money is not fully spent each year, but instead of returning it to the taxpayer as they are supposed to under law, they do something, they plug it in elsewhere for, for later or, or, use? Or nipper it. They nipper it. <laughs> That's another right? term. They, they named after the uh, little metal shears that you cut metal with. Mm-hmm. You snip it, and then, then you, you put it, plug it in to mm-hmm. somewhere else where it won't be found. So you build up a slush fund of money that is unaccountable. There's there's several kinds of money that the Pentagon gets. It gets what's called one-year money that is for basic running of the Pentagon, various mm-hmm. operations from fighting wars to uh, paying salaries mm-hmm. to repairing buildings. You know, all of these things are, are one-year money. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's five-year money, which is like program money for things like weapons projects, like the... F-35 or the F-22 or, or you know, the uh, destroyers mm-hmm. and cruisers or uh, what have you. Mm-hmm. So um, one-year money is required to be uh, returned to the Treasury if it's not all spent within a year. And everybody knows that any bureaucracy uh, or agency seeks desperately to make sure that it spends all its money that's appropriated so that they can ask for more the next year because if you if you spend less mm-hmm. then you know the uh, appropriators in congress would be more likely to say oh you didn't need that much money well this year we'll give you what you spent last year you know because we obviously gave you too much right so you never want to do that that's sort of a bureaucratic rule so what the pentagon does is they they ask for more money than they need then they don't spend it all and then they uh, tuck away what isn't spent in ways that it won't be found, uh, violating the Constitution, by the way, and then that unspent money becomes a slush fund that's available to use however they want. Unless people think this is a fantasy that, no, they would never do that and they could never get away with it, mm-hmm. they did it in the 1980s. And, and Chuck Spinney was the one, you know, along with some of the, uh, his colleagues, uh, other whistleblowers at that time, exposed it. And what it turned out was in the in the the iteration of this theft from the taxpayer in the 80s, what they did was they 
overstated the the inflation adjustment in their budget request for the following year. That was a period. I'm not sure how old you are, but uh, you know, in the '80s there mm-hmm. was some pretty epic inflation, mm-hmm. um, and at one point it got as high uh, briefly as I think about 10 percent. But what the Pentagon did was because people were thinking, and there's a lot of inflation, they put in a 30 percent uh, bonus in their requests for money. And, of course, uh, inflation never hit anything near 30%. So at the end of the year, when they hadn't spent that much for the inflated costs that they had claimed might happen, they took, instead of returning that money, they put it into something called a merged surplus account and hid it. And that money quickly piled up to be somewhere between 60 and $100 billion dollars. And that was a lot of money back then, right. because the you know back in the eighties the defense budget was more like three hundred billion dollars, and so, so you had a hundred billion dollars floating around that was unaccountable. And Spinney says that he and his comrades uh, had some evidence that it might have been used to help fund the Iran Contra uh, scandal, where the Reagan administration was paying for a uh, army to fight the. Uh, Nicaraguan government, mm-hmm. Sandinista government, uh, even after Congress had passed a law outlawing government funding for the Contras. Does does any of this money <laughs> then that they uh, that they're allocated each year, they don't spend, they sock it away in some account or another? Does does that actually explain Rumsfeld's going back to 2001, his so-called missing no. 2.3 trillion dollars? Do we what what what? No, that's different. That's a different thing. The the, the huge numbers, uh-huh. the, the trillions of dollars, have to be fake, uh, in my view, because if you have trillions of dollars in secret money mm-hmm. that would be coming, it would have to be manufactured money. It would have to be money that's being printed by the Fed. Uh, for example, the way they printed money and handed it to the uh, uh, too-big-to-fail banks in mm-hmm. the fiscal crisis when they gave trillions of dollars to the banks and lent it to them uh, by having require, mandating that they buy Treasury bills. You, you can make money. You know, The Fed can print money. Uh, but if it printed that much money and the Pentagon was spending it, um, we wouldn't have had a recession. We would have had, you know, epic uh, stimulus spending during that whole period from 2007 on um, when these huge plugs were showing up. But what does that so mean? Is, what does that mean that that Rump, you say that it's fake? The two point three <laughs> trillion dollars was he just wrong about those numbers? They did not actually exist. We weren't. Yeah, missing he didn't that know money? what it was. I mean, that's the that's the funny part. He didn't know what it was himself. He saw the numbers, uh, and by the way, these numbers are on the uh, asset and liability side. So even if it was, if the, if they were real, they mm-hmm. tend to in part cancel each other out. So you're saying you you received uh, a trillion dollars, and you're saying you spent a trillion dollars. You know, and so uh, it's not as though there's it, it's all cash coming secretly in or expenditures being made secretly. So these numbers, what they the only the only real impact of them, mm-hmm. other than that they do allow you know if there is secret money being spent, uh, it would be easy to hide it because because there are all these numbers that sort of blind the uh, the overseers who might look at it in Congress or whatever. It's, it's, I think they almost breeze past them because they say, well, 
that can't be right. <laughs> well, and and even Ernst and Young can't figure it out when they actually exactly. are allowed they walked to do away it. From it. Uh, they, they threw up their hands and walked away from it. So so the numbers are fake, and they destroy any credibility of of the budgeting that's being offered by the Pentagon. But here's what what's happening: the Pentagon each year they come in and they give Congress an accounting of the current year and fiscal years income and spending, mm-hmm. you know, the financial report. Right. And they give them the prior year, too. So so in this case, it would be they'd give them fiscal 17 financial reports. They'd give them uh, fiscal 18 financial mm-hmm. reports, and then they'd put in a budget for what they need, they say they need, for fiscal 2019. And so Congress is getting all this to look at, and presumably what they're supposed to do at the Armed Services Committee is to look at the prior year spending and what happened to it, and then say, okay, and this is what you're asking for, so we'll, you know, we'll give you what you're asking for because you are showing us what you did with it before. But, you know, as Jack Armstrong said in my article, mm-hmm. now Jack Armstrong is the, uh, for five years uh, or six years, was the supervisory director of audits at the Office of Inspector General. So he really knows what's going on and what what. Uh, the Pentagon budgets are, and he, he told me that if the Pentagon were being honest, they would go to Congress and say, all these financial documents we're giving you are garbage. And that's pretty strong language. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, essentially, you know, the, that's the Inspector General saying that they are just making up numbers, bringing them to Congress so they can ask for more money the next year. Uh, isn't the Inspector General here, I and mean, this was it was kind of uh, striking, um, you know, auditors uh, did not understand this when they looked at it, but the year after year, the Inspector General is supposed to be overseeing this, what is the is the inspector general yelling and screaming and going to Congress and saying, hey, they're making up the numbers? No, they're very gentle about it. What they do is they say, they, they point to the numbers, these astonishing numbers, yeah. trillions of dollars, and they say these, are, these numbers are not supported by uh, underlying accounts that can show what's yeah. happening. So they'll say, uh, you know, go back and fix this. <laughs> But nobody goes but back and nobody does. It. And then the same thing happens the following year. And nobody has been prosecuted for this. Nobody has been fired for this. And also, when they an interesting thing that Armstrong told me was um, there were some numbers that were quite large that said supported. And I asked him about that, uh, and, you know, and others that are mm-hmm. not supported. And I said, well, how can it be that, you know, uh, a number that's larger than the Army budget uh, is within the army accounting is said to be supported, and he said, "Oh well, supported in the view of the inspector general means that it was signed off on by the appropriate senior leadership. Uh, uh, you know, so it's not just a number from a guy, you know, with a green eye shade uh, writing out a number because he's too lazy to put in the right number." Um, it's if it's signed off on by the proper authority mm-hmm. in the chain of command, then it's supported, whether or not there's evidentiary material to back it. Uh, I've got I've got uh, just a minute or two here, uh, Dave, and I will point folks over to this uh, to this article uh, exclusive: the Pentagon's massive accounting fraud exposed over at the Nation. Um, I'm. Uh, 
I guess I'm, I'm, I'm struck by, well, A, obviously the defense contractors are all doing fine here, but, you know, we have so-called conservatives who don't seem all that interested in getting to the bottom of this, but we do have some new Democrats in Congress like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who would like to see, you know, things like single-payer health care and, and other additional social spending they might be very interested that there is a whole bunch of billions of dollars that are not actually being spent each year. Have you heard uh, since the publication of your article? Have you heard from uh, from any of those new Democrats or even from uh, you know Republicans who have read this and said we need to do something about this? Well, I got it after uh, months of trying to get a comment from Bernie Sanders' office. I finally got a written response that says that there's a lot of fraud and waste at the Pentagon and we need to get to the bottom of it. It was pretty, a pretty, you know, blasé yeah, boilerplate. Uh, comment, but uh, yeah, it sounded pretty boilerplate, but at least he said, you know, that, that there's a problem. He didn't address the plugs. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard's office sent me something similar uh, saying we need to get to the bottom of it, but it was also uh, didn't, she, she uh, didn't address the plugs. Uh, the only one who did was uh, oh, and Beto O'Rourke's office, uh, and he's on the Armed Services Committee, as is Tulsi Gabbard, mm-hmm. uh, in the House, uh, did not respond to repeated efforts to get a comment. Um, so it, it, you know, it's not that encouraging. Ocasio Cortez is the exception, and she got hammered in the media because she misconstrued what the twenty-one trillion is. She described it as you know missing funds and said that could have funded two-thirds of the cost of 10 years of Medicare for all. But it's not missing funds. You know, I tried to make pretty clear that it's not. Um, but she did do something remarkable. Because she went out on a limb and, and tweeted that out, uh, it was the first time that the $21 tri- trillion figure that was discovered by uh, academic researcher Mark Skidmore at Michigan State University ever made it into the corporate media. They've ignored his, studiously ignored his report that was issued last fall, uh, and the number has never appeared in the mass media, uh, corporate media, and now it has. And in fact, thanks to Ocasio Cortez, the fact checkers at the Washington Post and PolitiFact and Vox are saying that our story is correct and that Mark Skidmore's research is correct about the plugs. And that's a huge breakthrough. Well, we're getting so, somewhere, I guess. Yeah, uh, so thank you to her. I mean, we need that kind of gutsiness. I wish she had contacted me before she wrote the tweet and we could have gotten it right. But she got it out there and the number is now there and it's reported as correct in the Washington Post. And you offer a uh, an apt reminder at the end of your story that, as I say, I'll point folks towards uh, that, you know, in this case, the defense contractors, uh, obviously, they are winners here, but you note the losers are everyone else. You cite Republican uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was then a uh, retired five-star military general back in 1953 when he noted, quote, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. I think that's going to be important to remember in the days, in the years ahead here as the uh, fights continue to try to actually take care of our people 
and stop shoveling all of this money into unaccounted for uh, black holes in the in the Pentagon. Dave Lindorf, I'll point folks, as I said, to your article exclusive, the Pentagon's massive accounting fraud exposed at uh, The Nation in the uh, paper version of the magazine, which is available next month. But the article is now this online week, actually. Uh, this week. OK, and you can, uh, of course, read it at thenation.com. Dave Lindorf, greatly appreciate your work here and uh, you're joining us today. Hope to speak to you again in the future, my friend. Thank you so much, Brad. I hope to. Bye-bye. Thanks to David Roberts of Vox.com and Dave Lindorf of The Nation and to you for joining us for today's Best of the Bradcast and spending part of your day with us. You can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world. So-